Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Can you, I, should, I don't know if I should ask, can you see me or hear me? <laughs> Short people have such difficulties. Uh, I wanted to thank you all for, I want to thank you, especially Mr. Whiteman, for inviting me here. Thank you all for coming out. I'm told that I have to set the right tone, that this is the beginning, and if I don't get it right, well, you understand the implicit threat there. <clears throat> anyway, um, I'm from the government in Washington. How can I help you? Oh, no. <laughs> this is Texas. I have to tell you, I've been waiting a long time to come to Dallas. My best friend in graduate school lives here. Uh, she and her husband have t taught at SMU. And I was so excited when I knew I was coming, and I emailed her, and she never answers an email. This one time she answered immediately, and then I realized why. She was in the hospital, having knee surgery in Phoenix. So, but thank you for inviting me. It's just a, <laughs> such a pleasure. Now, um, for purposes of full disclosure, uh, yeah, I worked for the CIA for 20 years, and one of the favorite people I worked for, I will confess, was George Herbert Walker Bush. And one of the people I never saw was his son, George W. Bush. Um, but that's not the topic today for discussion. But um, I was an analyst. And the nice thing about the CIA was you never had to take a, a position on policy. You were policy prescribed. You did not get involved in that. And it's had a lasting impact on me. So I will start out by telling you, full disclosure, I'm neither a Republican or a Democrat. I'm not a political person. But I like to think that I'm an honest person and an objective person. I trained as a historian under one of the really tough masters <coughs> who always told me I was wrong, so he must have been right. But um, in the process, what I want to do, I may tell you some things that you'll violently disagree with. Well, not violently. I'm sorry. That was last night. Uh, <laughs> just a joke. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but what I want to do is talk about some assumptions. Where are we with Iran? Where is Iran with Iran? Uh, the impact of its nuclear policy and its internal uh, issues, which are very important, <clears throat> and what that might mean for us, for the neighbors, for Israel, for the United States. Um, mentioned options briefly, although there are not many options. And as somebody said to me last night, all you said was you can't, we can't do this and we can't do that. I know, it's that CIA thing kicking in. We're good at estimates and good at saying what won't work. And what would work is up to somebody else, right? And I want to end with what we don't know, because I think that is the critical part of my message. So let me just make sure I can check the time so that Mel doesn't get... <laughs> likes to tell me when to stop. <clears throat> Assumptions. I think, if, and again... Full disclosure, I'm not a rocket scientist, but you'll figure that one out right away. Uh, assumptions. Nuclear, nuclear Iran, nuclear weaponized Iran is a top issue on everybody's agenda here in Europe and in Israel. 
uh, but it's not the top issue in Iran. Does that shock you? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Uh, for the United States, for the Europeans, uh, obviously for Jerusalem, it's a matter of deepest concern. And what are the next steps, and what are we going to do, and why won't they listen? Uh, we just don't understand. They make promises, and they then they change their minds. Who stands for what? If only we could get rid of that Ahmadinejad and those mad mullahs, everything would be fine. Well, I'm here to tell you that that isn't quite true. It, everything might not be fine. The real truth is we really don't know. Um, for... Um, for Israel, as you well know, this is the existential crisis du jour. I've been through a couple existential crises with Israel, and sometimes I feel a little bit jaded. I'm not really sure what the solution is, but I'm not sure I like what, I'm t <laughs> what they're saying. Uh, the point is a nuclear-armed Iran, a militarized Iran, is a challenge to Israel, which has long had protection because it was the only power. It had a monopoly on weapons, It had, a, uh, and there were understandings. Uh, there were many countries in the region that might have thought about developing nuclear for uh, civilian purposes or for military purposes, and they didn't because they respected the uh, NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. They accepted that. And even though they were unhappy, uh, the neighborhood, the Arab states, that Iran, uh, Israel had not signed on it, still um, I think they felt comfortable in many of its assurances. This is disappearing. What it, the effect of Iran and nuclear issues is changing many things. Um, I also, uh, since I do spend time, I have visited a lot, and I do have many friends here. One of my friends... Uh, is David Menashri. I don't know if you've heard of him. He is an Israeli. He is one of the world's preeminent scholars on Iran. He was born there. And for David and for many Israelis, you know, the, uh, I don't know if you remember, but not so long ago, the uh, president of Israel and the chief of staff were Iranian-born as well. So Iran has a great influence in Israel, even if it doesn't know it. <coughs> but um, for David and for many that I meet, the Israelis don't understand what happened. We were so close to Iran under the Shah. What happened? What went wrong? And I think to myself, don't they get it? There was a revolution, a major revolution. Things have changed, and arrangements you have, understandings you have with the leader don't always survive regime change. Uh, never again. Uh, the, the attitude that preemptive strikes are a good idea they're not always. Um, so we have some problems here. Now, I want to give you both sides of a very complicated picture. And for Iran, what are we talking about? Iran has a real crisis, and the, their real crisis is not nuclear. That's important. They know it's important as the gateway to Europe. They don't want to see uh, heavy sanctions. But they have a serious crisis since June of uh, last year, uh, in the famous or infamous election, whose results were tampered with, which brought Ahmadinejad this incredible victory, and set in motion a process that we really don't know where it's going to end. Uh, we may be looking at internal unrest, unhappiness, which will blow away because the, the system is very repressive. I can't go to Iran. I'm on the, I'm on the list of the top 60 
uh, international groups or whatever who are trying to uh, create the Velvet Revolution in Iran because I'm still, of course, CIA. They have no concept of when you change jobs or anything else, but it doesn't matter. But uh, we're dealing with almost a uh, paranoid mindset in the sense of being besieged, being victimized, uh, and um, not what, what the, uh, deciding what to do. But it is that set of internal crises which is driving Iran and to a lesser extent the nuclear issue. Having said that, can you see why they might not feel comfortable in giving away one of their strengths, in giving away one of their top negotiating positions? I've been to almost every country in the Middle East. I have to tell you, I think the Iranians are the, the hardest bargainers around. I would hate to have to negotiate with them. They are good. They're good at a lot of things, but I often have a feeling that they have invented this process of haggling over a rug, if you will. It's just a, just a euphemism for being very tough negotiators. I covered, as I said, in the 1980s, uh, Iran, terrorism, and the hostage issue. And you can't believe how difficult that was. And at one point where uh, we took Israeli advice and sold the Iranians and were, were going to sell them, we actually did sell them some. You may have heard of Iran Gate. Remember that? Iran Contra. I forgot about the Contras, but this part of it is important because not only did we, did we break a lot of laws, but we, had a, we were convinced that the key to success and the key to getting our hostages out of Lebanon was to find that moderate Iranian cleric. I have trouble saying it because it just doesn't go together. Uh, <clears throat> but the point is to find that moderate that we can deal with. And you know what? That moderate who we look to deal with then is still around, but he's not very powerful anymore. Uh, Mr. Rafsanjani. Again, did we get anything out of that short-term and painful period? Because it was painful. Um, we did get three hostages released, and they t Hezbollah immediately took three more because they like to keep a certain number in the stable for training purposes. So did we really gain anything? No, I don't think so. But we lost in the process as well. You can't deal on terrorism. You can't by hostages, and Mr. Reagan may have thought we would never do that, but we did. So, Iran, always, everything is a negotiation, everything is a bargain, and I deal in track two diplomacy, you know, I don't know if you know what track two is, it's everybody else, Mr. Baker, Mr. Bushes, they are at the top, that's track one, that's the government, but I, I, I work on an effort for uh, Middle East security and uh, conflict resolution, which used to bring Iranians in, but doesn't anymore, because it would be a jail sentence, loss of job, and God knows what else, uh, for those who might think of coming. Um, but the point is that <clears throat> the mechanisms exist, but we're not getting anywhere. Now, if you look at Iran, and I've described what I think they see as their real crisis, you have to understand their worldview. You may not like it, but there it is. Um, Iran is an exceptional nation. It is one of the oldest uh, empires. You know how long it goes. You've read your Bible. You know how long uh, Persia goes back in history. Only Egypt has been an identifiable state longer than Iran. Um, Iran has uh, been tolerant to many, uh, as, as most Muslim countries have been, putting aside everything after... 1945, <laughs> but the point is that this, these were 
tolerant and intolerant, but Iran also is something that many of the other states are no longer, I guess that's the best way to put it, a multi-ethnic empire for thousands of years. Um, actually, Persians are a bit of a minority in the so-called empire, uh, in the state that is Iran today. But they see themselves as exceptional. You know what exceptional is. Americans are exceptional. The French are exceptional. We're always the best. But for the Iranians, it means they really don't like or uh, respect, if you put it that way, for example, uh, the, the Arabs. They don't want to deal with them. They want to deal with us. They like the Europeans, but they think we're scripting for the Europeans in the nuclear negotiations, and we're behind everything else, all their problems, and they do want to deal directly. But finding a way to do it on terms that are acceptable or are politically safe in Iran is uh, a major, major problem. So we have the exceptionalism, uh, a certain haughtiness about the Arabs, also a feeling that those Sunni Muslims, you know the Sunnis, are very anti-Shia. We've seen that happen in Saudi and in Iraq where uh, there are some very correct and proper Muslims who believe that if you're not a Sunni, you're bad, uh, you're an apostate. So things are not always good. But the point, again, I want to make is Iran sees itself as a natural leader of this region. And the region they're looking at is not just the Gulf and its little neighbors. They're looking at the greater Middle East. So Iran is such an important state that it must be considered in all issues. And that is not just what happens in Iraq or Afghanistan. And hey, we got rid of their two, two greatest threats. But they believe that they deserve to have, they should have a place in the peace process. They don't favor, uh, but they have very strong ideas. They are involved. Hezbollah is a terrorist group. Hamas is a terrorist group. But remember, one man's person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. I know you don't like that. But uh, anecdotally, I heard this. I hope this story is true, that when Ahmadinejad won election, Hamas's leader went off to Tehran to congratulate him. Now, Hamas gets an amount of money from them, of course. And who's going to say no to money? Hamas needs what it can get. But taking taking the, what, the king's shilling, taking, taking the money does not indicate uh, power, authority, and control. So the story goes that the Iranian, uh, <clears throat> it may have been Ahmadinejad, I don't remember, it's not important, very senior, it was either that or Khamenei, asked, well, what will you do for Iran? What will you do if the U.S. attacks us? And the Hamas leader said, we'll pray for you. Now, I don't think that, I love the story, I hope it's true, because I, I think it indicates a certain level of tension and lack of control. We like to assume things are simple. It is or it isn't, things are black or white, your forests are against us, but not in this area of the world. Iran has always been especially opaque in its relations and its dealings, and that's not going to change. Now, what's happening in Iraq, Iran, oh, I did that again. I've worked on Iraq for so long. I countries, they're all alike anyway. <laughs> Sorry. I sometimes have my senior moments and I do that. Uh, Iran has always been a very opaque system. You can't see what's there. Is there accountability? There's no transparency. Who makes decisions? But some things have become very clear since June. And these are very important things. There may no longer be a re an Islamic republic. 
the events of last June and tampering with the elections uh, may have set in process its destruction. The supreme leader, who's supposed to be above politics but control everything, may not be so strong anymore. He's come under a lot of criticism. Uh, is is uh, either one of them important? Supreme leader used to be and probably still is. I don't know if Ahmadinejad is or not. Someday, I mean, the criticism of him is very open, carefully open, but it is forbidden because of their control over the press and the instruments of repression, as my, uh, <laughs> my Syrian colleague uh, calls them. In the morning when we're driving, he carpools with me when we drive, and we, we drive on the HOV. You have HOV here? And he sees the police out stopping those who are alone in their car. He says, ah, you see, instruments of oppression. Well, that's a Syrian <laughs> I tell him he's much too native. So what do the Iranians want? We, some people would like to think this is the beginning of the revolution. Maybe it is. Things don't happen quickly in this part of the world. We may be in a situation today that is similar to Iran in 1977 and 78 when that process really got rolling to get rid of the Shah. But that was a revolution that took decades to set up, in effect, and a couple of years to really get going, and all kinds of political co coalitions. In Iran, what's really important is who are you related to? Who are you married into? Uh, what are your networks, and who is your support? So we could be in that process now. It's hard to say. Again, because things are opaque, because of the, uh, the new republic of fear, what we used to call Iraq under Saddam, um, there were many in Iran. Yeah, they talk about reformists. Don't worry about the labels. The point is there were many, and these were people I knew who have since gone to prison for knowing me or knowing Westerners or attending things. But the point I want to make is that <clears throat> there was a strong belief in reform. Change is coming. And beginning in the mid to late 1990s, I would meet with some of them every year. And I remember the first year we went through this, Everything was getting better. It's only a matter of time before we have uh, real democracy. And what they meant was working within the system, within the Constitution. They certainly didn't want to live through another revolution. But there could be change from within. Um, and succeeding years after that, I didn't hear that as much anymore. Each time I would meet with people, and I would hear them talk, uh, it was grimmer and grimmer. And as I said, now some of them have been in, in prison. So can you reform the system? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Um, the nuclear issue. I said it, it was not the prime issue, but it is an important issue in the internal political debate. When Ahmadinejad was not in charge, he criticized the, uh, his predecessors, the so-called reformists and others, including uh, Mr. Rafsanjani, for selling out to the West, selling out the, Iran's nuclear uh, strengths and hopes and possibilities, selling them out to the West in order to be in their good favor. Um, what we have now is Ahmadinejad being accused by the reformists of the same sin. So be careful what you ask for. We as Americans tend to personalize everything. Evil, ah, that's Ahmadinejad. In the American view, Iran is run by a bunch of mad mullahs. Uh, they're crazy because they don't agree with us. Why can't they see things our way? And you know, why should they, you might say. But the, again, um, there is a, such a, a stark different point of view. It's become a, a tool to be used inside. Now, also understand, Iranians don't debate the nuclear issue. They certainly don't even talk, wouldn't talk about nuclear weapons. 
whenever you read about nuclear, it's always our nuclear capabilities. Now, you can ask, you know, wonder what is going on. There are a lot of reasons why Iran may want, want these nuclear weapons. Um, some will say it's prestige. It's a funny kind of prestige, but I think the point is it does enhance Iran's image as a country, as a people who are as technologically smart and capable, certainly as the Iraqis who did the same thing, uh, that they can put these things together and that we have not been able to defeat them, or maybe slow them down in their acquisition, but not defeat them. Uh, there's another point I wanted to make. Defeat. Ah, yes, this is an important point. Iranians, there is a certain mindset. And Iran is a country that has been occupied several times, divided into zones of influence, told what to do by different imperial powers. The Iranians see the United States as being a 19th century imperial power still. So for the United States and the Europeans to come in and tell the Iranians, you can have this, but you can't have that. You can't have nuclear weapons. You can't have nuclear anything. Or, okay, maybe we'll let you have civilian power. But... What does that look like for the, to the Iranians? It's another example of 19th century colonialism. Those foreigners are coming in, they're intervening and telling us what we can and cannot do. They have no right. And in this issue, they get a lot of support from the neighborhood, which says, yeah, they can't come in and tell us what to do. The scary thing is that, again, nuclearization of these issues uh, gets to diplomacy and gets to some other things. Can you imagine... The, the neighbors of Iran, which say we support what Iran wants in terms of nuclear civilian power, nuclear capabilities. They have the right to be able to defend themselves and develop what they need for their people. And you know what? Turkey, Saudi, Jordan, maybe, um, Syria, certainly, uh, the Gulf states, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, one of the richest places in the universe, more oil and gas and money than you want to think about, they're all talking about acquiring nuclear power plants because the demands on energy are so high. And when prices go up to, what, $140 plus a barrel again, they will, won't they? Um, then we're going to really be uh, in good shape. Iran has based its budget on oil. Well, originally they wanted to base it on $140 a barrel. Not too smart because at that time I think oil was under $50. The Iraqis are a little bit more realistic. They pegged their budget, I think, at $75 a barrel. They're not going to lose much. But uh, you know how you feel about these things had a major impact. So let's move it, moving right along before uh, Mel catches me again. There are a couple of principles. I want to raise the level just a little bit, the discourse, to say that there are a couple assumptions you have to keep in mind. And one of them is that leaders change, but regimes do not. Uh, remember when Sadat was assassinated. Remember when Rabin was assassinated. <clears throat> it did not change the government. It did not change the system or the society. If you look at um, the other part of that, I would point out, almost in many cases may not matter who the leader is. Most of these countries, including Iran, these are one party, one leader, one, uh, one society, one maybe one tribe in some case, that dominates. And the military has uh, quite a heavy bit of influence, the dominant influence in more than half of the Middle Eastern countries. What's scary about Iran? 
Iran, uh, Iran has two militaries, the regular military that's always existed but not trusted, and it has the IRGC, the Islamic Republican Guard Corps. And it is that Islamic Republican Guard Corps, IRGC, which is expanding its influence, uh, is leading to a militarization of Iranian politics and society. What does that mean? Uh, we better stop worrying about the mad mullahs and start worrying about those in the IRGC they con who control intelligence, internal security, who are the protectors of the regime and the revolution, and it's the revolution we're talking about, not Islam, <coughs> and who are in very much control. I'm sorry, can you not hear me? Down? Like that? Can you all hear me? Oh, I'm sorry. Should I start all over again? <laughs> I like that. They're candid. That's good. I'm sorry about that. I'm also very hoarse because I talked all day yesterday. <clears throat> okay, military. And again, in Iran, there is no accountability. There's no transparency. So there is a problem here because I think that this is the real force. If they were to see the regime threatened, what would they do? Uh, they're the ones in charge of so much of the law and order and suppression of opposition now. Um, second point I'd want to make is that regimes can change, but national interest never changes. The national interests of Iran under the Shah and his predecessors are the same primarily as under the Ayatollahs and under the regime today. Ahmadinejad's not a cleric, but he's more, I think he's more religious in many ways than the clerics, uh, and in a very fundamental sense as well, fundamentalist sense. But uh, again, national interest. Iran is following the same course as they will quickly remind you that they pursued in the old days. Hegemony, preeminent power in the region, the right to be considered in everything and to be totally independent. Uh, it's not a territorial issue either. <clears throat> so, oh, this is my favorite. This one, this really explains, I think, so much of this region. An Iraqi friend told me this a couple of years ago. He says, you know, you don't understand, Judy, he said. Perception is more important than reality. Um, what does that mean? It means that uh, what we think we see or conspiracy theories or what we want to believe, it's not necessarily linked to reality, but we're very creative about it. Now, that's true, I think, in the United States very often, too. Our perception... Iran's mad mullahs and clerics, uh, they are out to destroy us, et cetera, et cetera. I would even extend that, even though it got me a lot of heat last night, uh, how their policy will be towards Israel and toward those issues, I don't think is written on missiles, and I don't think is, a everything is open to negotiation all the time with the Iranians. It's getting into that negotiation, understanding the rules of engagement, which we don't. And that's, that's where I want to conclude. Um, and the, the point, the major point here is we understand them as poorly as they understand us. We have not had official representation or businessmen or, uh, and women or interests in Iran since 1979. How many times have I heard there are no Persian speakers? There are a lot of people who are learning Persian, but you know, learning Persian in a classroom in McLean is not like learning Persian. Being able to go there, being able to go to school, being able to live there, to really understand the cultural history, uh, or the, excuse me, the history, the political culture, 
the mindsets, and the fact that Iranians, on a human level, are so basically pro-American, unlike most of the Arab states, where the heads of state may, they may say they love us, but the people certainly uh, a little bit more skeptical. I guess that's a good way to put it. So options, and then concluding, and I'm still in time. <clears throat> uh, I want to recommend a book to you. And it's perhaps, hopefully, symptomatic that we're about to change some of these blind spots in our policy making. And that is the naming of Ambassador John Limbert. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. You will. He was a hostage Foreign Service career officer, PhD from Harvard in Iranian studies, fluent Persian, totally fluent. He could do interviews. He could lecture. This is a, this is a second language to him. Knows taught there for years, and then again, I said was uh, taken hostage. He with all the, he's got all the kinds of experience that way. Say, how could you send a person to be in charge of that? They don't know this. They don't know the language. They don't know Arabic. They don't. This is different in a very important way. Now he's he is um, deputy secretary of state for Iran. You know what I do when my students do that? I just you know, she fails. Uh, but what he he has a 14-step plan. It's kind of like what Alcoholics Anonymous uh, for how we can. He doesn't you have to like them, but not uh, but talking to someone, negotiating, or engaging. That doesn't mean you like them or you accept anything. It means you're talking to them and you're engaging and you'll probably argue with them. But uh, it's an important step in the process to normalization. So what are the options, America? Wake up. Um, we need to think about Iran internally and what we can't do because we, we can have these, you know, diplomacy, spies, that's all mission impossible, it's all TV and movie stuff. The reality is that meddling in Iran at this point um, I think is stupid for uh, quite a few reasons. To say nothing of our military commitment, uh, commitment of our forces in two wars plus Haiti already, uh, doing an attack on Iran is not the same thing. I'll come, let me come back to that. But I think we need to think in terms of where Iran is, what does it want, and what it might be willing to accommodate and what would we accommodate to. In other words, what's the price they're going to demand for anything? And I don't think they're going to roll back and say, okay, we'll go back to the way we were in 1960 and we didn't have nuclear plants and we weren't even thinking about it. This is not going to happen. Uh, and we need to understand what kind of leverage they have. In other words, where can they hurt us? Where can we hurt or help them? Uh, I think President Obama has handled it very smartly so far. Remember, I'm not a politician. But he has done some things which are so uh, counter to the previous ways we've approached Iran. In his no ruse speech, which is New Year's, which comes in March, it's not Islamic, it's a real traditional regional no ruse New Year. He uh, spoke to the Islamic Republic of Iran. That's not been done before. Can you remember an American president who's done that? Uh, and he spoke in very positive ways. And the Iranians were stunned that he was elected. And it's thrown them off guard. And it's made Ahmadinejad very uncomfortable, too. But uh, you, uh, what he's done has, I think, set in motion some of these challenges that Ahmadinejad can no longer assure himself of the strong position he may have had before.
but this cr political crisis is the most serious crisis Iran has had since the revolution and certainly since the eight-year war with Iraq came to an end. Now, uh, I'll, I'll, some questions to think about. If there is no contact, can there be, you know, what's the alternative? If you can't talk to them, and you don't know who they are, and nobody else does either, um, what's the alternative? Is there an alternative? And I don't think there is. If there's no under, uh, let me put it this way, if there's no contact, there's no understanding. And if there's no understanding, there's no alternative. That's why I have to write some of these things down, you see. I sometimes forget. Okay. Limbert says in a book that's called Negotiating with Iran, and he titles it Wrestling with the Ghosts of History. We have a lot of history with Iran, much of it good, some of it not so good. It's very complicated. But the point, again, is that you have to know your, know your adversary. You have to know their history, their political culture, what they may be saying when they say something which may mean something entirely different than you think it is. We Americans are, what you see is what you get, right? We're honest, we're outspoken, we're candid. Well, this is not that area of the world where these things are the same. They aren't in most places. So, uh, options, I'm almost finished. Um, we could ignore all of this and ignore the fact that they've missed deliberately every deadline. They said they would agree to something that they don't. Um, I don't believe you can ignore this. I've never believed you could ignore Iran as we did for so long. Um, Iran may interpret our position as a sign of weakness. I guess what bothers me with that weakness is the macho sense of it, that diplomacy is not a macho sport. It's something else. Sanctions? We've had sanctions on Iran since 1979. Arms sanctions. And has it made a difference? It has in the sense that I think we've slowed down. We've certainly slowed down their development. We've, in, we've hampered a lot of foreign investment, which they need. But we haven't prevented them in acquiring nuclear technology, nuclear weapons, training, and all of those things. If you want it, if you're a government, if you're leaders that want it, you can get it. It's out there on the black market, the gray market. There's always someone to sell. We once went to the Russians and we said, uh, we don't want you training Iranian scientists anymore, and we don't want you selling them all that stuff. And Bushir, that plant that they finished, not a good idea. Don't open it. And the, Iran, uh, the Russians have been dragging their, dragging their heels for a couple of years, and not, it's not quite finished yet. Or it needs a little paint here or there, whatever. But um, we can't stop them. And I think that's something we have to come to terms with. And I'll say what I said last night again. I think Israel's going to have to come to terms with this as well. There aren't a whole lot of choices here. You're not going to roll them back. What you have to do is find a way to turn this into something which is not the threat you see, but where you can affect change, uh, 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 compromises and some kind of solutions. But again, sanctions, does it, would a military threat work? This is not 1981. You know why 1981 is important? Israel in 1981 attacked the just about to be loaded, that's not the word I want, what is the word I want? Fueled, thank you. I told you I wasn't a rocket scientist. Uh, fueled nuclear. Uh, and they staged that remarkable raid, which took out the sole Iraqi nuclear facility. But 
The Iraqis hadn't fueled it yet. They had no air defense. And the Israelis, and I've heard the ambassador, who at that time I think was chief of the Air Force, the Israeli ambassador in Washington, not this one, but his predecessor, in effect, they had help from the French engineers, uh, one of whom drove the station wagon, parked it in front of the facility with a hauling device, with a beacon, and then left for Paris. So there was a little bit of help there, and all these stories will come out now. But you can't do that. Why? Iran, like Iraq, learned from its mistakes. It's dispersed. Do you know how much they have? We don't know. We know certain things. Yes, thank you. Uh, but we don't know what they have and where, and what are you going to hit? You're not going to prevent them from, from uh, rebuilding. You're going to encourage them to do it more, better, faster. That was the story with Iraq. Um, so I'd say that. Now, some warnings. I have to give my cautions. Okay? Avoid personalizing conflicts. It doesn't get us anywhere. Beware simplistic thinking. The question I usually ask is, where do you learn about, where do you get your information? Where do you learn about Iran or the Middle East or anything else? And Weigh it with a grain of salt. Try to think with, uh, with an open mind. Or if you're going to get from one source that's kind of biased, get from a couple of biased sources in other directions. But avoid simplistic, avo avoid sound bites, avoid bumper stickers things, the way we see in every election. Bumper sticker, sticker slogans are not policy. Uh, don't assume that regime change in Iran is going to change any of these policies. Because I don't think any government, any regime or leaders can afford to immediately turn around and say, okay, we give up, we'll roll back, you can have what you want, we'll sign. Not going to happen. So, my cautions. Iran is not Iraq. Iran is unique. They all are. Uh, I talked about you can't repeat the kind of OSIRAC thing. And remember that Iran is strong now. 1975 they were strong. 2003 they weren't strong. Uh, there are times when their enemies are stronger, but it's never the same. The point is they don't want to deal out of weakness. They don't want to negotiate from a weakened or a lesser point of view. Uh, who knows where they'll be 10 years from now. Let me end with one, one funny story. It's not about Iran, it's about Iraq, but I think it's about more than that. We as Americans, when I speak to audience, I say, I have five minutes. I can tell you only four things about the Middle East or whatever. And I, it's a great... I don't know how popular Doonesbury is here. I like it. But he had a brilliant cartoon about two years ago. It's about Iraq, but it's about, it's about the area a bit larger. And it's about a sense of history and identity. And these two soldiers, an American and his Iraqi counterpart, are driving through Baghdad in their Hummer. And the American says to the Iraqi, you see that house over there? We're going to take that guy down tomorrow. Terrorist, Al-Qaeda. And the Iraqi says, ah, yes, he says, I know that house. I know that person. Uh, someone in his family murdered someone in my family, so this is good. And the American says, really? When did that happen? And the Iraqi says, 1387. <laughs> and the, Amer uh, the American says, can't you guys get over it? So my last words are this. Time. Everything takes time. Nothing's going to happen real fast. Are the Iranians delaying so they can get everything finished and then say, okay, now we've got the bomb, now we'll negotiate? I don't know. You can believe any conspiracy you want, but you have to think carefully. Uh, be careful what you wish for. Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Yaffe. Now, uh, in our, our sessions over here, uh, we've had a very, uh, we've found a very effective way of working it. The, the, 
our luncheon uh, ends formally. Our luncheon ends formally at 1:30, and then we have a, uh, then we can uh, we have an informal question and answer around the podium over here where, to visit with Dr. Yavi personally. Also, to so there are always uh, usually a whole lot of questions. We found it very effective to for to entertain three questions at the same time. And uh, I will start with, I was handed a card here with a first question, and then you all think about questions, and I'll ask for two more. This question. <clears throat> the president of Iran in the past has made serious threats against Israel. If Iran is successful with its nuclear weapons, would this give the U.S. and other nations the right to invade Iran in order to prevent a disaster from occurring? First question. Now, two more questions. Let's see, uh, right here. Okay. Speaking of uh, you mentioned several times the election, and of course we saw on TV of a dissident. Mm -hmm. If we uh, call them reformists, which you mentioned, and if we call the government the rigid Islamists, what issues do they actually agree upon, i.e. the national interest? And where do they disagree, and what would happen if, in fact, uh, power would come to them? Good question. Okay. Uh, over here. Yep. Let's assume for a minute that Iran gets the bomb nuclear capability. We do cross that line. Yeah. Is it feasible that we could deter them in the very same way we deterred the Soviet Union through mutual assured destruction for so many yeah. years? Is that comparing apples and oranges, or is that another option? Ooh. That's a hard question. I thought these were going to be softball questions you said. <laughs> Not in Dallas. <laughs> <You lied. laughs> On the question about Ahmadinejad and Israel, what Ahmadinejad says, Ahmadinejad says, it doesn't represent um, Iran or Iranians' point of view. It may not represent much of anything except what he and his hardliners, and even there I have a feeling that most Iranians are clever enough to know uh, what you negotiate. Now, I will say this. Ahmed, the presidency of Iran is not a powerful position. He's not supposed to be involved in foreign affairs and foreign relations. He's supposed to take care of the economy and things at home. Well, he's done a really bad job on the economy, and he's expanding, he's pushing the envelope by saying all of these things. What does it represent? I guess I know it upsets people when I say it, but I am not that worried that he's going to blow Israel into the sea, it don't ever exist again. I mean, ask yourself, if you nuke Iran, uh, excuse me, Israel, Iran believes is the leader of the region, the greater Middle East, and also it is the protector of Muslims. And when they talk, and the supreme leader believes he's the leader of the world Muslim community, and not just of one sect, not just of the Shia, all Muslims. Do all Muslims accept him? Of course not. And the Iranians have done themselves a lot of damage by messing around in this election. Uh, Ahmadinejad's reputation is hurt. Khamenei's is hurt. This whole thing of Iran as the model of the new Islamic democracy is really damaged. But if nobody is going to complain, we don't want to provoke them, right? But I don't think that uh, they're getting a nuclear bomb, first of all, I don't, I have a, a feeling, I mean, I think they're going in that direction, of course, wouldn't I, if I were doing the same, and that's an intelligence foul, you know, problem sometimes, but um, then I don't think they're going to cross the threshold openly, and I base this on the experience I had 
when we were dealing with the hostage issue, which I followed very closely, that was my job at the time, and that is that, um, where was I going? Senior moment. Uh, remind me, what was my last? You're dealing with hostage. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Everything had a price, and everything was fungible, everything was negotiable. Now, um, and they're hard bargainers, but you never had a sense of what the bottom line was. I will point out that a couple of years ago, I was at a conference, this is Rafsa Johnny was still in power and strong, and an Iranian who was there to talk about nuclear issues with me, I didn't know that until I put it, I'm a little slow, I don't know why I was ever in the CIA, um, asked, we don't understand, we Iranians, again, perception and reality, why you didn't, weren't more grateful to Rafsanjani for arranging the release of those hostages. And I, uh, you know, because they finally all came out in 1992. You know, the first one's taken in 1985. And I said, well, that's nice, but what took so long? You have to understand that the perception in the United States is what the hell took so long? What did it take? So that didn't go real well. Uh, but I don't think that uh, anyone is going to see this as a, if they have a nuclear weapon, they're not going to, I don't think they're going to cross, cross the threshold by a nuclear test. I think, and again, that's the way, uh, it's opacity. It's the same thing with the hostages. They never were claimed responsibility. They never had anything to do with what those surrogates, what that other group was doing in their behalf. Same thing here. But they could go nuclear. They could cross the threshold in the sense that Japan could cross the threshold. What do, what do we call that? Um, nuclear... What's the proliferation. No, no, um, not proliferation. Um, you know, in uh, computer terms, it's a... Uh, well, the point is, they could have it there, and they could put it together quickly. Now do we know what the word... <laughs> I'm sorry? Well, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, they don't have to put it together and, and test it and everyone say, ooh, look what they have. Now we're scared. They can have it and they will let you know that they have it. They will know that you know that they know you have it. That's the way it was with the hostages. That's the way it has been in a lot of difficult negotiations. But I don't think... Again, I'm very hesitant to say the Europeans are behind us. They're going to do smart sanctions, hard sanctions, and they'll be behind us. They won't be. So who is going to do this? I think that, uh, and I'm not saying we should look wimpy or wussy, but I don't think it's the right, uh, it's, it's the solution. The question on the, what are the Iranian, what do they agree and disagree? I don't know. I know what some of them disagree. Rafsanjani, a very strong leader until now, uh, criticized, and the regime gets a lot of criticism, bad economic handling, no investments, um, no in infrastructure, economic, no, uh, we need to repair relations, we need to get loan and all of that. Instead, Ahmadinejad is spending his money on charities, Islamic charities, and on preparing uh, the major mosques for when the hidden imam returns, because he thinks that the, in the fullness of time, when the hidden imam is supposed to come back, it's soon. Don't ask me anymore. <laughs> but the point is, we really don't know. We like to think that you only, when it looked like he was going to be challenged in the elections by a man named Ali Larajani. And people in America said, isn't that great? 
yeah, this is somebody we can deal with. I don't think so. He's as much a hardliner as Ahmadinejad. He's their, he was their lead nuclear negotiator. He's not going to change all of a sudden. So we really, um, I don't know that there are great differences. And it depends on who's manipulating the strings as well. Uh, so they, there are differences. Most of the differences between these factions is over domestic issues. It's over the economy. It's over the liberality of society. Should women be forced to wear shadur and the hijab, the veil? Or can we have uh, clothes, uh, a little bit more freedom? Can we mix more? Or are we going to have strict segregation of the sex? Those social issues. Can we have access to the internet? Can we have Facebook? Can we go to school outside? Can we meet an American and not feel that we're going to go to jail next? Those are the issues that the greater difference is. A lot of the people who were real hardliners and very anti-American in the 1980s still are, but they're reformists because of the domestic economic issues. Deterrence. What a wonderful word. Um, I, maybe there is a deterrence strategy. I don't know what the Iranians understand about deterrence and what it is. They see this nuclear nuclearization, weaponization. It's a great equalizer. It creates a level playing field that they couldn't have elsewhere. How else can you deal with the great Satan? On the other hand, they also never wanted to uh, invest in rebuilding a conventional military. Expensive and not trustworthy. Uh, in the end, you might be creating the people who are going to remove you, as so often happens in this region. So um, I don't know, because we don't really know we haven't talked about it. We don't know what their red lines and their limits are, and they don't know ours. It's a mutual thing. Very good. All right, uh, questions. Uh, uh, what part of Russia and China playing with the government in terms of turning them against the United States? Frank? Dr. Yanti, where do you think the, the line of no return is as far as uh, nuclear non-proliferation in the area, uh, breakdown of that into competition uh, among all the different states, especially the Sunni states, who fear uh, Iran as the Shia nuclear power becoming a Shia nuclear power in developing their own uh, <coughs> What is the likelihood of uh, Israel uh, attacking uh, Iran, and what will be the deterrence of uh, the factors encouraging them to do so within their own state and uh, not doing so? Ooh, yeah. Want to take one more? No, that was uh, three. That, that was, was three. three. Okay. We'll come back. Okay. I promise. I'll be here. Uh, Russia and China, it's not the Cold War anymore. So I don't think of Russia and China... Uh, do what they do to encourage anti-Americans, not the Cold War. But they have interests. Russia, for example, uh, sees itself as a major, um, it markets its, its, its nuclear industry. It wants to earn a lot of money by, uh, you know, Iran is going to put out for contract uh, 20 more nuclear power plants all along the Gulf. Wow, that's a lot of money. Uh, uh, the Russians would love to be part of it, the Chinese would love to be, but so would the Italians, the French, and everybody else, if only they could get it back to being kosher, if you will. 
uh, what I think the problems that we haven't been able to stop either Russia or China from helping the Iranians in their acquisition of these bad things, of nuclear things. China has provided them with missile technology. But the Iranians are very clever and they're adaptive and they've been able to take what they got from the Chinese and the North Koreans and adapted. They're, they're doing pretty well on uh, delivery, missile delivery systems, long-range missiles. They can now strike anything um, in the neighborhood. They can strike beyond Israel. They can strike into, into Russia, into Europe. They have something like maybe a 2,100-kilometer range, and it's getting better. It's slow, but it's getting, they're getting there. And if you watch your TV, early February is the 10 days of awe commemorating the revolution of 1979, and they like to parade their missiles and their new weapons. And they like to put lots of speeches out there threatening us. But they're building a navy. Um, they're building more ports and facilities along the Gulf, and it's the IRGC that's in control. To me, that's scary. Um, China has been establishing, I don't want to call them bases. They are opening up and selling China everywhere in the world. You name the country and they have business investments, they'll sell arms, they'll do construction, uh, everything, and they'll do it cheap. And they'll bring in teams and get it done quickly. It may be shoddy, it may not be good work, but they're there and, they're, and they want to build. The other thing is China now gets more than 50% of its energy needs from the Middle East, from Central Asia, from Iran. They want to build pipelines across Iran. They want to increase their capability to ship, which, which is going to bring them into the Gulf. They're, going to be, they're in every Gulf state. And um, within a couple of years, they will be virtually dependent, almost totally dependent, on Middle Eastern energy. So our ability to influence them, not, not too good, I think. But you never know. It's a price. Sometimes it's a matter of the price. What would be the right price? What would China want from us that would cause them to change? What would Russia want? Because the Iranians don't like, they don't trust the Russians. I don't think they trust anybody, to tell you the truth. But they believe firmly that the Russians, if given the right price, would betray them. I think they're right, but I don't know what the price is. Um, I can't read my writing. I don't think there's going to be a, oh, a nuclear Iran, and what does that mean? The, the Shia bomb as opposed to the Sunni bomb? You know, Pakistan always had the Islamic bomb, for God's sake. Um, I can't read what I wrote, so I got no return. Yes, I see that, yeah. I think that there is still hope that the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which Iran belongs to and is following their guidelines. Of course, they're breaking a lot of them, too. But if that has been our hope in the past, and that has worked to contain a lot of the spread of proliferation. But that may be over, if, depending on how Iran succeeds. In terms of uh, Israel attacking Iran, quite frankly, I don't think so. They talk a lot about it. Uh, they're showing great strength and determination. But you know what I worry about? It occurred to me late one night that a lot of it is to get us to do what they want to do. Because, first of all, attacking Iran, it's not like it's as easy as attacking Iraq. Uh, the Iranians have dispersed facilities. Uh, they're in a lot of places. We don't know where they are. And at best, it would be a demonstration. Here's what you stand to lose. So, obviously, you're not going to do it anymore. It didn't stop Iraq, and it won't stop Iran either. 
but I, what I started to worry about is, and all this drumbeat for war with Iran and attacking Iran and we should do this, uh, what would Israel do while we were busy doing that? And I have a feeling that it's going to be, it would be the next war in Lebanon against Hezbollah. But I don't know. It's just a, it's just a guess on my part. Push to have one thing done, but there's always another agenda. I'm a realist. I'm not anti-Israel. How can I explain this to my uncle, who thinks some days I am, and, and, and I, spam, I put on my spam list and I don't want to hear anymore. But I think the point <laughs> is that we really don't... Um, Everyone's got an agenda. Nothing is what it seems. Time for one more question. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that you haven't mentioned, and it's, it's something that appears to be happening, and this has started happening, I think, about six months ago, and this is targeted assassinations. Uh -huh. Assassinations of generals, assassination of nuclear scientists, disappearance of nuclear scientists. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see? Is this good? Is this bad? Is this... This has been going on for a long time. Now, you're thinking in terms of the, uh, there was an Iranian general who either defected or was kidnapped. I have no idea what the answer is. But uh, was it now two weeks ago, the Iranian nuclear physicist who was killed? What do you think? Who would do something like that? Um, there are a bunch of plausible culprits including the fact that this guy was linked to the reformists, to Musavi and the others. And they're killing people for that. There have always been targeted killings for the past 10, 15 years or more. Iran is not a real safe place for opposition. But then I said to myself, and I call it the uh, Ephraim Principle, an Israeli former friend and scholar uh, who's a real right-winger in Israel and at a meeting, a regional meeting once said, you know, the only solution is uh, first we warn the Iranian scientists not to cooperate, and then if they go, do, we kill them. Now, was he speaking in jest? The man has no sense of humor. Um, but we, again, if I look at circumstantial evidence, I would worry about other nuclear scientists, for example, the ones who were helping Iraq, Egyptians and Europeans, and who were murdered were taken care of, removed. So I don't know what the answer is, but it is scary. There are a lot of, there have been a series of targeted killings. Opponents of the regime, students uh, in Iraq, and I think the Iranians are behind it, the murder of more than 100 Air Force pilots from the Iran-Iraq war. Boy, talk about targeting. So, you know, there's a lot to look at. This concludes the formal part of our meeting. Uh, we're going to have another half hour around the podium here with Dr. Yaffe. Let us give a hand of applause. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.